So what is it like to feel like you're in the middle of competing corporate objectives between the pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply? Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build flourishing organizations, one at heart with high integrity and a healthy culture. My name is Tobias Sturzen, and I'm the co-founder of Heart Management. On this episode, I'm really honored to be joined by Richard Bistrong. Richard is a former sales and marketing vice president in the law enforcement and defense sector. In 2012, he was sentenced for violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Richard then worked as a confidential human source and cooperating witness for the United States Department of Justice, and he served with the City of London Police in a convert and cooperating capacity before serving his 14 months at a federal prison camp. Today, as the CEO of Frontline Anti-Bribery, Richard consults and speaks on bribery, ethics and compliance issues at institutions such as the World Bank, the International Anti-Corruption Academy and many global multinationals. Richard, it's really an honor to have you on the podcast. Tobias, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for the invitation. Could you share a bit about your journey and, and just tell us a bit of your story from vice president at a law enforcement and defense sector company to being sentenced for violating the FCPA and then on to what you are doing today? So to be us a little bit about that journey. So I did spend 20 years as a sales executive, 10 years focused on the U.S. markets. That would be the U.S. law enforcement and U.S. military and then 10 years focusing on the international markets. So like a sales or commercial or operational leader in many organizations, I moved from one role to another role, and we can talk about that later. But I, for, the, for the listeners today, what, what I think is important about my work in the defense field is, Tobias, it's not a defense story. I worked for a company that was very similar to many of our listeners today. It was a global multinational. It was publicly listed. It had a wonderful portfolio of brands, and it was committed to aggressive top-line growth in stable markets, such as the U.S., where I started my work, and some emerging markets, where I spent 250 days a year overseas for a decade as an international sales vice president. So that was my role. And I also worked and resided out of the United Kingdom for part of that time. To make a very long story short, Tobias, in 2007, I was targeted by United Nations officials in what was the United Nations Oil for Food investigation. And it was initially an investigation of what we often call a third party, a channel partner, an intermediary. And as we see with many of our global corruption scandals, sometimes the trouble doesn't start with the multinational employee. It starts with the channel partner. And ultimately, that UN investigation in 2007, 10 years after I started that international role, led to me being terminated for essentially to be a bribing United Nations official to win a large public procurement tender in a conspiracy through the third party. 
and I was terminated by my former employer. And then the United Nations investigations official turned over the findings of his investigation to the Department of Justice and also to ultimately to officials in the United Kingdom. So I then cooperated with uh, law enforcement when they when they gave me that call in the United States, you have the right to a trial. You're innocent until proven guilty or you can cooperate. And I cooperated. I did it. So I did not want to evade justice. I wanted to face it. So I became a cooperator, as you mentioned in the introduction. But where it really gets interesting is when I when I got home in December of 2013, Tobias, I started to look into the compliance, ethics, and culture and anti-bribery worlds. And what I found was a very robust and interesting discussion by well-experienced practitioners from law, from forensics, from the audit side, the investigatory side. There were compliance consultants. But Tobias, I didn't see or hear any part of this discourse from the front lines. What is it like to be a Richard Bistrong, and there are hundreds of thousands of them all over the world, working in some very volatile and difficult markets, even more so now in our coronavirus environment, tasked with aggressive commercial success, while at the same time having been trained in ethics and compliance issues. So what is it like to feel like you're in the middle of competing corporate objectives between the pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply? I didn't have to sacrifice integrity to succeed, but I did. And that's no one's fault but my own. So Tobias, I just started writing about it. And in 2014, I set up a very simple blog and just started to share my story and to talk about what I think is making difficult issues discussable, a journey into the commercial mindset to surface some unknowns to be is to really help people make principled decisions in what is now a very complex world. So that's a little bit about my journey from corruption to compliance and culture. You you talk about part of this journey when when you kind of came to to the place of making the decision to 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 act in I mean in conflict with the law and where you, you talk about a kind of a perfect storm. Could you Describe a little bit about what that perfect storm was and, and what that is maybe for, as you say, so many of thousands or maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of people. There, there are many different elements to it, but part of the perfect storm, there's, there's a wonderful book um, called Giving Voices to Values by Mary Gentile. And she talks about how we want to all want to live up to our standards of personal and corporate integrity, unless we think it puts us at a competitive disadvantage. And to be us, that's how I started to look at my environment. I started to try to figure out risk while I was in the middle of it. I started to think, well, I'm not the only person doing this. And again, no excuses here. These rationalizations, these justifications and temptations, cheating's always a choice. So I want to make that clear. The decisions that we're talking about, that we're sharing, were ultimately the ones I took responsibility and went to prison for. 
But hopefully our listeners today can say, okay, what would the Richard Bistrongs and our organizations do under similar circumstances? And that's what happened. I started to think, if I don't do this, I can't keep up. I can't compete. And Tobias, I was selling life-saving equipment. In my case, it was armored vehicles, armored vests. These were products that were there to safeguard the health and welfare of individuals. And I wasn't tampering with the products. So I'm thinking, who's really losing here? I wasn't thinking about how even small bribery robs societies of good governance, economic development, and human rights. To me, it was all a win-win, right? I'm making these big sales. The end user is getting a life-saving product, sometimes even faster due to the corruption, depending on if there was a customs official that wasn't clearing my goods pending a small bribe, right? The company's getting all these sales. I'm making my objectives, my incentives, my, my bonus, my forecast. The company's happy with all these big orders. Public sector employees are paid at what we might think of as poverty wages. So in some cases, I'm thinking, okay, the public official gets a little something to make ends meet. I'm sharing a little bit of my compliance library for you, but there's another wonderful paper called Self-Serving Altruism that's co-authored by Harvard professor Francesca Gino. And what she says is when we think our unethical conduct benefits others, like I did, right? no one's getting hurt here, that we come to think of our decisions as morally acceptable. We even come to think of ourselves as altruistic. So those are very scary clouds, so to speak, in this perfect storm of rationalizing bribery. And from my perspective, those are the challenges that still exist to the workforce, and even more so in our current crisis environment. I, I think we often overlook the importance of, of the, I would say, the inner life, the heart of an organization, the, the small kind of what might seem insignificant conversations that take place when we think that maybe no one else hears or sees and that over time can corrupt the culture in an organization. And I've heard a bit as you shared your story that, I mean, all of this, it started with some conversations that might have seemed insignificant. Could you just speak into that and also what you think that the, the role of culture has in, in this if we want to build an ethical organization? We'll, we'll break that question up. And the first part is my first experiences with corruption were channel partners sharing with me using every word you can imagine other than bribe that they were paying bribes. And those initial conversations, they weren't asking me for anything. They were just sharing, you're on the right team. We're going to win this project because this is how I get things done. Now, that's not what I went to prison for. And ultimately, I did go to prison for things where I had to get the money out of the company. But that's not how it started. It started by me nodding my head to these conversations where people were sharing that they were paying bribes. And also, interestingly, they were not what we think of as bag men. They were providing legitimate business services, marketing support introducing me to end users to make complex and technical sales presentations. They were doing translations, but they were also paying bribes when they needed to pay bribes. And 
just by nodding my head by the promise and understanding that a bribe would be paid, I violated the FCPA, the U.S. anti-bribery law, as a co-conspirator. So my journey from having a graduate degree in foreign affairs to ending up in prison didn't happen in a few big steps, Tobias. It happened in a lot of small steps, and that's how it started. In an episode a few episodes ago, we in, in, I interviewed Alison Taylor, who, who is the executive director of Ethical Systems, and we talked about the concepts of of an ethical culture and how do we build an ethical culture and what are the things in a culture that drives unethical versus ethical behaviors. And I would just want to hear your perspective. What do you see in the culture of the organization that you worked in? What was it that perhaps created that space for unethical behavior to happen? And what can we do to be intentional about creating ethical cultures in our organizations? Um, that's a great question, Tobias. And Allison and I are very aligned on this issue. We we wrote a white paper together years ago where she interviewed me. And when we think about culture, when ethics and compliance and responsible business practices are only coming out of the legal and compliance function, Tobias, from my former commercial self, Culturally, that sounds like a support function. But when it's coming out of the voice of business and business leaders are the ones who are setting ethical expectations, well, then it sounds so much louder culturally because it's not only coming from the voice of, of legal and compliance, it's coming from the corporate narrative. And the other part of that is, okay, that's a wonderful voice. It's you're really setting the tone from business as opposed to support functions. But the other part is everybody's sitting together. And now it's harder to do this because we're not all sitting together. So it's like a virtual intervention, so to speak. But when incentives, when objectives are being developed, and those are usually long developmental and planning cycles, our compliance leaders and also other support function leaders, including HR, including finance, is everybody sitting at the table together to make sure that those incentives and objectives are aligned with the company's values. Because if they're not, bad behavior, like in my case, can hide behind good performance and there really are dangerous reward systems out there. But the question is, are compliance leaders, HR leaders, finance leaders, is everybody sitting together to talk about what those side effects can be? And I often half-heartedly joke that incentives and objectives are like prescription medicines. If you turn the bottle to the side, you're going to see all the side effects. And every company's incentives and reward systems have side effects. And does everybody know what they are? Because they exist the day you roll them out to the field. And are you challenging yourselves? Are you making each other accountable as leaders in an organization to understand those side effects? And if we're not careful, 
like Allison often addresses, and we're not looking at real world risk before we're committing resources, we can have microcultures develop in organizations where if we have perverse reward systems and incentives in maybe one part of the world, you can have a culture coming together saying, okay, we need to figure this out. And that's really putting people in the middle of that tension between that pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply. So culture is everybody's responsibility. And that's part of our compliance journey. It's not just the responsibility of people that we might think of as in the ethics and compliance function. I, I really want to dig into this tension uh, in the business world, what, what you've described as that pressure to comply with regulations and the pressure to succeed. And I think this kind of stands at the center of every, we could say, values conflict in every organization. And it might not necessarily be with ethical regulations. It might be with things that are not that kind of clear cut, uh, but still that is the tension. What are we willing to sacrifice something in, in order to, to do or to live by? What, what principles are we able to stand by, even though they might cost something? And, and I just want you to maybe talk into a few examples that you see where that tension manifests in organizations, where we need to be extra mindful about it today. The tension between that pressure to succeed and that pressure to comply, Tobias, it exists in every organization that's committed to grow. So I think part of it is just understanding that it can be a healthy part of business and a healthy part of business growth. But I think where we have to be particularly mindful of it is when we are launching new products, when we're going into new markets, where we're looking to grow our businesses in what we know are volatile and high-risk parts of the world. And in those situations, I think it's important to get feedback from the field before you're going out and rolling out your strategy and to ask the people who know risk best. And who knows risk best? The people who work in the middle of it. And to ask them, you know, what are some of the the roadblocks, the impediments, the risks that you face in getting to the finish line, because we want to make sure that we're baking those risks in to our business strategies. So particularly in emerging markets, in new markets, in new product launches, where you don't have the benefit of experience, really soliciting feedback from the field and perhaps appreciating that Success is possible, as I often share, one ethical decision at a time. But in some parts of the world where in a stable market, given a resource commitment, you might expect a return in two or three financial quarters. In some parts of the world, Tobias, you just need to be patient. You need to devote resources to due diligence and onboarding. And it might say, you know what, we can still realize success but it might take us six or seven financial quarters instead of two or three. So as Allison says in this wonderful white paper she wrote many years ago, we need to go into new markets with a clear-eyed view of the risks that we will face. And it's important to do that before you're putting people in the middle of it. 
And the, I think the other thing I was at, would add is like the Richard Bistrongs of the world. Right now, there's a lot of organizational change going on, Tobias. We have a workforce that's stressed and anxious and uncertain about the future. When you're moving people around, when you're changing their supervisor, you're changing their roles, there's a change in the organization. You almost have to have another conversation about the new risks that they might, that they might face. Because what research has demonstrated is in a time of organizational change, people think of three things, me, me, and me, and there's a high risk of workforce misconduct with a risk of decreased employee, uh, employee engagement. So we don't want disorganized controls to be met with organized misconduct. So particularly now in this current crisis environment, we need to affirmatively address the uncertainty, the tension and the anxiety that the workforce faces. You, you've written about the importance of middle management in this. And I, I thought that was so, so important in, in building integrity. And that is not just about the tone at the very top, the C-suite, but about the behavior and message from middle managers who actually evaluate their team's performance. Could you speak to why you believe that that is so important? So to be as tone at the top is irreplaceable. It's essential. But who does the workforce turn to when they're uncertain, when they're confused? To their line manager. So that middle level management of the organization is critical because to be a, they have the volume control on two things. They control the volume of get the business done and the volume of how important it is to appreciate how you're getting the business done. That band of middle level management has the ability to amplify, distort, discard or discount messages of ethical practices and responsible business practices. They are critical to the success of culture, of ethics and compliance. And what research has demonstrated is how some even very well-resourced and very well-intentioned compliance programs have failed because they don't make it through that ring of middle-level management. There is one author, Denise Leon, who wrote a wonderful book called Fusion, and she calls it the frozen middle, right? And how do we make sure culture gets amplified at the middle, not frozen in the middle? So we all, I, there's no end to talk about tone at the top, but it's that middle level that really, really can inspire and impact the workforce. We have found in, in our work that one of the common, I would say, heart conditions or issues that many organizations face is that we begin valuing appearance over integrity and that we buy into a picture of our organization as a good organization. And we aren't then really ready to honestly assess our behavioral patterns and our culture. And instead, we tend to attack people who bring concerns to our attention. What can we do to address that misconception, both, I think, as individuals, both thinking that I could never do something like that or thinking that we as an organization could never become or, or do something like that? That's a very real issue, Tobias. 
Aspirational goals are easy. You can look at any multinational, go to their website, and you will see wonderful goals, values, our mission statement, our commitment. They make for wonderful wall posters and intranet messages, right? The question is, how do they get operationalized? Saying to someone who works in a high-risk, volatile market that our policy is just say no to bribery. Well, of course, say no to bribery. But that doesn't operationalize ethics and integrity. You know, bribery and corruption issues look much different in South America than they do in the Middle East. So the question is, how can you calibrate those aspirational values, those wall values, to the real-world risks that people face, right? And that goes back to our incentive structures, our reward structures, our business goals. That's really where, as we say, you know, the rubber hits the road, and people need active leadership, right? They need this coming through the voice of business, because I think right now, passive leadership, just talking about aspirational goals, but really not setting concrete ethical expectations from that voice of business can really be confusing to the people who need clarity. So, so much of this is operationalizing our values to the real world risk that people face. And Tobias, that's not going to be easy. That's going to take work because this is not a one-size-fits-all problem when we talk about culture and ethics and anti-bribery issues, and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. So we really need to help operationalize those issues to the people who need it the most to work in some very difficult regions and under this current very difficult environment. I've read a book where, where you were writing some some thoughts about how we can operationalize those values and, and kind of really build integrity into our organizations. And could you talk a bit more about what you think? What are the key things that that leaders, HR leaders, compliance leaders should be doing to, to, to make that happen in their organizations? And, and I'll answer that question, Tobias, in the context of our current crisis environment. And hopefully there'll come a time where people are listening to the podcast when we're not in this environment. But particularly for right now, you know, I, I think what everybody needs to be doing, I'm talking about all support functions as well as business leaders, is soliciting as much possible feedback from the field as possible. Why we're in a time of rapid change. We have a workforce that, again, as I shared, stressed, anxious, and uncertain. So we need to ad affirmatively address this stress, ask for feedback, ask people how they're doing. And you don't need a fancy Zoom webinar to do that. You can just get on the phone and call someone And, you know, from, from a corporate perspective, for corporate leaders, show a little vulnerability yourself. Talk about how you're facing this crisis. Because I think if we do this, if we make these connections, we can emerge from this crisis stronger than we started. Because, Tobias, 
no news doesn't mean good news. Okay. And thinking that if people aren't on the phone calling you asking for help, that everything's okay, can really be dangerous. And that goes back to that passive leadership as the enemy of ethics and integrity. There is a wonderful book. And again, I'm sharing my compliance library called The The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. And it is another must read when you're thinking about culture. And what her research demonstrates, Tobias, is the more we reach out to each other when there's not a problem at hand, the more I'm calling you just to check in, to be an accountability partner, to ask how you're doing. When there's not a problem, the more likelihood you will reach out to support for support when you are facing an ethical dilemma and a crisis is at hand. So this is such a time to show some vulnerability, humanity, and humility as leaders of an organization and how you're coping and to reach out to the workforce, even if they're not calling you. So I think if we want to strengthen these bonds, we have a very unique opportunity, but it won't happen on its own. It needs to be affirmatively and proactively addressed through frequent communications. And just when you think you've done it enough, it's time to do it a little bit more. This is not a one and done activity. What what would you say to the person who is kind of in, in your, in the place that you were when you first heard about one of your partners being involved in, in bribery? And of course, it's easy to say, don't do it or, or report it. But but what would you say about kind of, as as you mentioned, Mary Gentile, and, and we I interviewed her in our episode uh, some weeks ago, and, and just this, this concept of giving voice to values. How how do you think that that can be done in a, in a constructive way and that you, looking back, could have done it in your situation? Well, being on a podcast where Mary Gentile and Alison Taylor have had the chance to exchange views with you, Tobias, I'm in wonderful company. So thank you again for this invitation. And, you know, leaning back to what Mary Gentile talks about is have these conversations in a safe zone, right? If you know people are going to face certain risk, why not unpack that as a team before people are in the middle of it? It might even be a little role playing and try to help people understand how they're expected to engage in what's inevitably going to be a difficult situation. So what I always share to the Richard Bistrongs is, look, number one, the only problem your organization can't help you with is the one you're keeping to yourself. So you can always unpack a problem as a team. And even if you think you've made a mistake, you can always course correct. You can always go to your team and say, I think I made a mistake here. It's not like wine. That doesn't get better over time. The sooner you do that, the better. And then going back to what Mary Gentile said, try to have those conversations in that safe zone, right? Where you can help people understand and go through the inevitable situations that they're going to face. 
And finally, what I share with the the former, you know, speaking as my former commercial self, is I always share with commercial leaders, it's okay to love your job, to be confident in what you do, to be competent. But guess what? It's also okay to be confused. Your values are going to get challenged. And not all ethical decisions are easy. In fact, some can be pretty tricky. So don't worry about that. That's nothing to be ashamed of. The most important is to slow down a little bit when a crisis is at hand. Take, a, take your time, think about some solutions, and call your team and ask for help. Thank you so much, Richard. And I've really, really appreciated this conversation and, and you sharing your story. And I think that there's so much, much to learn, both from your story and all the things that you've been learning uh, since then. And just wanted to ask you finally, how, how can our audience learn more about your work and, and stay connected with you? I know that it's, a, that it's a great idea to follow you on LinkedIn. So thank you for the question, Tobias. So I have a Frontline Anti-Bribery Facebook page, I'm on Twitter as Richard Bistrong. I'm on Instagram as Richard Bistrong. And my website is Richard Bistrong. And we'll list all this uh, in the copy. Um, I've also recently launched in um, partnership with a former leader from financial services, Christian Hunt, a little bit of a toolkit. We call it a compliance communication toolkit. And we'll put that um, link as well. And those are just some short vignettes to help people understand what might be some best practices in terms of how we communicate in a crisis environment. So I'm overactive on social media, Tobias, and I welcome our listeners today uh, to join us. So thank you. And to all our listeners, thank you so much for listening. And if you found this conversation helpful, I would really encourage you to share and subscribe and, and rate this podcast. It helps other people get connected to the message as well. So thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>